Immediately following the service, the family will be going to the uh, cemetery here in Houghton. Uh, you're invited to join them uh, after the, the committal. Uh, we'll be hosting a, a light luncheon in the church community room, which is located directly behind us. The family invites you to uh, be a part of that gathering. It's an opportunity to visit with them and them with you. If you are unable to go to the cemetery, uh, please feel free to, uh, after the service, go ahead and make your way to the community room and uh, wait for the family uh, for when they uh, return uh, to join them in the meal. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I hold the keys of hell and death. Because I live, you also shall live. We've gathered here today to praise God and to witness our faith as we celebrate the life of William Timberlake Allen. We come together to acknowledge God's grace in our lives and to acknowledge our grief at this time of human loss. During this hour together, may God search each of our hearts that in pain we may find comfort, in sorrow, hope, in death, resurrection. Almighty God, you are our refuge and our strength. You are our very present help in every time of trouble. We ask that you would grant us your light to shine through the shadows of this hour. Comfort the hearts that are heavy with sorrow. Have compassion on our weakness. Give us a vision of your greatness. And surround us with the hope of the larger and greater life that you have promised through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
Isaiah 25, verses 1 and 6 through 8, and Isaiah 55, verses 9 through 13. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed from of old, faithful and sure. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged clear wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Then the Lord God will wipe away the tears from all faces, and the disgrace of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth be. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy and be led back in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall burst forth into song, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall be to the Lord a memorial for an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God.
Good morning. And heartfelt greetings to our wonderful friends, family, and to all believers assembled here today. This is indeed a most gracious gathering, and my father would be tempted to call it, with all decorousness, a soiree. We, as a family, are all too aware uh, this morning that death is painful. Um, And I would make this statement about death. Death is an ungentlemanly bore. Death is the raging of the enemy against our soul, the the temporary triumph against the body of the individual believer. And I would affirm today that my father was none of those things. My father was not an ungentlemanly boor. He was not one given to rages and tirades and coarse language. Uh, On one occasion when my brother and I had gotten into some sort of mischief, um, we heard a very strong phrase come out of my father's mouth, and it was, Dad gummit. <laughs> and I need only say that my brother and I fled in fear. <laughs> he was gracious and he was a most committed believer. And it really is about the grace uh, in the life of the believer that I wish to make my comments this morning. What is grace? We say grace before a meal. We note that someone dances with style, with grace. Uh, We compliment the person who handles difficult circumstances with grace. And on occasion, we name our female children, Grace. Grace is love and mercy given to us by God because God desires us to have it. It is not earned, it's not deserved, It's benevolence shown by God toward the human race. And it's one of his moral attributes, which delights in the happiness of intelligent beings. Grace is extended in a thousand ways toward us as human beings. And I ask that you bear with me this morning as I weave briefly several strands and threads from a 90-year-old tapestry of grace. And I would like to honor my father this way. Grace is extended to us through mercy. Now, we're going to have to go back a ways here. Uh, Picture, if you will, the terrifyingly beautiful, vast, and frozen prairies of South Dakota on January 12, 1888. On that day, an unfathomable blizzard swept in violently, covering, freezing, destroying everything in its path. And it came to be known uh, in time as the children's blizzard because, tragically, at that time on that day, more than 100 children who had been attending one-room schools out on that exposed land were hopelessly trapped and frozen to death. They were lost. And a literary aside, there is actually a book that my father read Uh, entitled The Children's Blizzard. It is well worth the read, and it does everything to reestablish the respect 
that we should hold for the people who settled that vast land out there. It's an excellent book. Now, how is this connected to my father? Picture on that same day, January 12, 1888, a very small boy, probably around the age of eight or so, buried under one of those deadly mounds of ice and snow with wind blowing 100 miles in every direction. No hope. The child will not survive. However, grace enters the scene. This little boy's half-brother literally stumbles over the boy's body. They were out searching for this child. He picks him up. Somehow, miraculously, he gets him home to his frantic family. He is revived and his life is saved. Now, that eight-year-old boy in 1888 was my grandfather. My grandfather was Walter Jewett Allen. Now, you did hear right. That was my grandfather, not my great-grandfather. 1888. As an aside, my sister, Rebecca, was born 102 years after the birth of my grandfather. And as my dad would say, we tend to do things a little bit late in our family. (laughs) Mercy was granted. Mercy is timeless, be it 1888 or 2017, God is not limited by a silly thing called time. And here we find ourselves today. Grace comes to us, uh, intelligent beings, through humor. And I have to say, we have laughed a lot this week. We have laughed a lot. Our God is a God of emotion, and we are made in his image. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. From Proverbs. I find the following to be quite humorous, and I suspect that you will as well, for most of you who know my father. My father was born in Brown County, South Dakota, a gorgeous land, a beautiful land, which, however, exacted a very high price at times for the privilege of living there. One tended to fare better in South Dakota if you were a raw-boned Swede or a rugged German or a determined Norwegian, or a really, really tough farmer. Uh, This was not a nicey-nice place of chocolates and good coffee. These were people who were willing to dig squares of sod out of the ground and stack them up and actually live in them. These were people who burned dried buffalo dung to keep warm. And we must not forget, of course, the Sioux, the Omaha, the Cheyenne, and many of other of the native peoples already living there, who lived there, who survived there, who suffered there, and who died there. And so into this place enters gentle Bill Allen. We used to joke uh, about him having been born in the wrong state. How did you, how were you born there? You should have been born in, you know, New Jersey or someplace else. Uh, A little safer. Um, Dad reminisced often about what was called the Dirty Thirties, the Great Depression. He talked about the swarms and clouds of locusts swooping in, covering up the crops, the trees, even penetrating moving vehicles on the roads. And as a child, he talked about watching them literally crawl up through the floorboards of his uncle's car as they were driving. Uh, and he's scrambling to pull his legs up on the seat to keep them from crawling up his pant legs. 
it was time to head for the safety of the East Coast. But first, the United States Army called. And Dad was a patriot. He loved this beautiful land. He respected the necessity of the strong military. Uh, he was a school child, uh, child uh, in school on Pearl Harbor. He respected his older brothers-in-law who endured the Battle of Midway and the horrors of heavy fighting and jungle rot and death. He felt deeply for wounded veterans in his later years and for those suffering from PTSD. In 1944, upon graduating from high school, he was immediately drafted and sent to work on the railroads in Arkansas. Now, for those of you who know my father, picture my father marching in drills uh, until he learned to march while asleep. He literally learned to march while he was sleeping. Rising at 4 a.m. to work the rails and later taking a role as a military police officer, toting a very large rifle, booted and helmeted, and I have seen the photos, so I know it happened, but he may have been one of the politest MPs ever, <laughs> asking everyone just to stop, stop doing what they shouldn't do. <laughs> I can just picture it. Uh, our God is kind. And grace is seen in kindness. In Titus, we read, But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. Dad was a kind man. Uh, in the Army, on one occasion, more than one occasion, he would read letters from home to illiterate soldiers, and that was not uncommon. Uh, he disliked immensely cruel-teasing, vicious and violent behavior, uh, he went out of his way to assist his own children, sometimes to the point of absurdity. And I can give you one very humorous example. In the summer of 1984, I spent six weeks in Germany on a study program, uh, and he agreed to watch my soap opera, <laughs> Guiding Light. He watched it every day faithfully for six weeks, and he didn't want me to fall behind on the plot. Uh, and then, to top it off, he wrote a daily letter giving me a blow-by-blow -blow description of the plot. And when I read his letters, I thought, oh, what a stupid program this is. <laughs> I mean, having it in text just put it all into perspective. This is really dumb. Uh, I can only imagine how foolish he found that whole experience, but he did it because his daughter wanted to keep up with the show. I've moved on since then. <laughs> Uh, he wanted people to be kind, but he was under no illusion that the world was a kind place. But he chose to remain mannerly and sweet anyway. Uh, and a nurse told my brother later uh, that when my father died in Olean General Hospital, a number of the nurses cried. Uh, he had treated them well. Grace whispers to us. The gospel is a gentle voice. Love, grace, mercy, peace, pardon, righteousness, and the free gift of salvation through Christ. About two or three weeks before Dad's death, I came home one evening, exhausted from my job and with all the beginning preparations for Christmas, and I opened my mailbox, and I found, to my utter delight, a small package containing two CDs. Now, the story behind those CDs is quite poignant. In 1989, I had moved to Berlin, Germany, and spent about 25 months living there. 
Soon after I arrived in Berlin, I received in the mail two cassette tapes from Dr. Heisinga. He had sat down one morning and played through our Wesleyan hymnal and had recorded that for me and had sent that to me in Berlin. And I listened to those tapes often, uh, especially because several months after I received them, he died suddenly. They were a gossamer thread connecting me to home and to this church and to our faith in a very dark place. In time, after I returned, I turned them over to his son, Nolan, who lovingly redid them. And time goes on and life happens and things are forgotten and that's the way it is. And he returned them to me about 20, 25 years later. Perfect timing, two or three weeks before dad died. God's timing is gracious. Grace was whispering that things were changing and that they were going to change. And I sensed it. I listened to those CDs. I listened to those hymns as I drove to work in the morning. And I sensed it, that still small voice of God. God prepares us if we are willing to listen. And finally, grace is hope. Grace is true hope. We know that in our flesh we shall see the Lord. For those who believe. Dad was a man who was filled with hope. He was the eternal optimist. He excelled at what we called compartmentalizing. Uh, world news, personal health issues, worries, anxieties were pretty quickly tucked away and ignored. Um, he told the doctor that his pneumonia was really more of a social issue because of all the coughing. Uh, and that he had been taking coughing 101. Um, it wasn't a Pollyanna approach to life. He was not unaware. But it was a true gift allotted him by God to lend protection to a very compromised body. It was a warm blanket of grace. He told me once that he had learned to say in the middle of the night when he might awaken with some ancient fear, something he thought he had failed to do properly in third grade. And he talked about third grade a lot. I'm not sure what happened in third grade. But... <laughs> Years later, he would say, I awoke with this anxiety. I didn't do something right. Or he would be concerned about some student, and he would pray, Lord Jesus, protect my mind. And that was that. And he would go back to sleep. He hoped to come home after Christmas. He hoped to keep watching the news. He had his remote strategically placed in his hospital bed. He was ready. He was looking forward to sitting next to the Christmas tree. Uh, but the greater hope has been realized, that of entering into the presence of the Lord. Mercy and humor, kindness, and the still small voice of God and hope woven gently into the tapestry of 90 years. And we are blessed beyond measure to have called you Daddy. Well, good morning. This seems like a very normal place for me, uh, <clears throat> although not this particular pulpit. But um, I've written this all out, which is very strange. I usually preach just from an outline, but I'm not preaching this morning, so <laughs> lucky you. That's good. <laughs> well, with Dad, where do I even start? <clears throat> El Padre, as he liked to call himself, said to me more than once to make it 
please abundantly clear that first and foremost, William Timberlake Allen was a child of God who was a sinner and saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I like that. He had learned from his father a good sense of Midwestern wariness of uh, melodrama and sentimentality and flowery self-promotion. He was saved by grace. Everything else beyond that was less important. But everything else, i got to be honest with you, was pretty great. Dad started out as a Methodist, or as he liked to call them, the Methodee, perhaps the plural. And he was fond of reporting that he was baptized as a baby by no less than the bishop himself. He was a thin, wiry boy who somewhat reluctantly played baseball and much more enthusiastically played the piano. On a Boy Scout troop uh, trip to uh, Enemy Swim Lake, which is a great name, by the way, uh, he developed appendicitis. They got him to the hospital where he was operated on by a doctor who stitched him up so poorly that I remember as a child being fascinated by the fact that my father had two belly buttons. The normal one, and then the one that was the appendicitis. At age eight, he began piano lessons and learned that there really was a way of writing down all the music that was flowing through his mind, and that was it. His lifelong passion to compose music uh, was started. His father wrote to his sister in a letter, Bill plays all the time. At about age 10, he and his uncle Will traveled out to the Black Hills together for a special treat. Somewhere on a road in in that vast prairie, Uncle Will lost control of the car, and it completely rolled. And as, you know, no seatbelts. As they uh, were lying there in this crumpled up car, Uncle Will calls out, Are you okay, Billy? And my father always related this in a high-pitched voice. He, He replied, I lost my dime. (laughs) They hitched a ride to the next town, and rich Uncle Will bought another car on the spot, paid with cash. Can you imagine? Wow. At age 12, he played piano for Arthur Rubenstein, who was uh, offering a performance in the town that he lived, Aberdeen, South Dakota. And um, upon hearing him, the great pianist said, Ah, Good tone. (laughs) The summer he turned 18, he shoveled sawdust in the ice house, as Beth said, on the railroad. And he said that was miserable. And uh, as she said, he was drafted into World War II, shipped off to Japan. In Pearl Harbor, men were calling back and forth to each other from the giant troop transport ships that that were there. And uh, somebody would shout out, anybody over there from New York? And somebody would shout back, yeah, Pennsylvania, California. So dad decides to try it. Anybody out there from South Dakota? Dead silence. (laughs) He was all alone. We always laugh that he was a military policeman. Must not have been too scary. He always said that his number one goal in the army was to find the nearest piano and play it as much as possible. He climbed Mount Fuji, which I'm always pumped about. I want to do this myself. He climbed Mount Fuji, but on the way back down, he got the worst shin splints of his life and uh, had quite an adventure there. After the Army, he studied music at Northern State University in in Aberdeen for a couple of years and then went on to Northwestern in Evanston, Illinois, 
where he graduated with his bachelor's and his master's, and then finally he got his Ph.D. from Eastman School of Music here in Rochester. Music, music, music. That's where his heart was. In 1953, Charles Finney came down, uh, came up to Rochester to recruit him to work at Houghton, and Dad described himself at the time as a believer, but a pretty immature one. And when he got to Houghton, he realized, these people are really serious. And uh, it changed his life. He grew greatly in his faith due to the good teaching and examples of his colleagues, especially uh, Nolan Heisinger, his neighbors, and Jane McMahon, the woman he married in 1962. Dad would often say that Jaina, as he called Mom, helped mold him into a far better Christian in person than he was doing on his own, and she would say the same for Dad as well. 54-plus years of marriage, 38 years of teaching, three children, more grandchildren. There's just so much, and we don't need to linger here forever. But I wanted to focus on a few fun remembrances. Dad always enjoyed creating new things. You know about the music. You've heard some of it, and we'll hear a bit more. But it also uh, came out in his experimentation with language and the little ditties he would make up and sing to us. In the fun dreams, he would always say, I'm going to do that someday. One of those was, he would say, I'm going to inherit $97 million. And I'm going to give it all to Houghton College, but only if they name the buildings after deserving professors that I get to say. Like Charles Finney or Nolan Heisinger or Gordon Stockton or Kay Lindley or Frida Gillette or Warren Wolsey or a list that could go very long and include several people in this, this room right now. He just uh, would naturally take everyday events and um, constantly play creatively with them. Uh, I remember listening to him shaving in the morning, and the electric shaver, and then I'd hear Dad go, or he'd take a phrase somebody shouts out in a in a busy house, you know, no one's in the shower. And dad would immediately say, no one's in the shower, da 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 And he'd like play it to a 1940s, you know, gospel song. da 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 And then he'd go for the ending. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da
we'd be driving down the road and we'd pass a fast food joint and dad would go, Irby at Arby's. <laughs> and then he would make it even more complex, like in the 90s when Gorbachev was bringing perestroika to, to uh, Russia, uh, his wife's name was Risa, and so my dad would just be like, Irby at Orby, Risa and Gorby. I mean, it just went on and on. When Raiders of the Lost Ark came out, he thought about that, and he said, let's call it Arters of the Lost Rake, which not only sounds fun, but actually means something. Pursuers of the uh, lost um, immoral person. That's... He had hundreds of little phrases that he would say over and over again. Let's show them as teenagers that we can do this, he would say when we were about to attempt something. I mean, he's saying this as like a 90-year-old. Let it not be said among us, he would start a a sentence with. Or um, somebody would give him something and he'd say, although undeserving, I'll take it. (laughs) Something would happen. A a nurse spilled something on him once and he said... "Uh, And he would say this often, oh, no, it's okay. This is my chance to be a martyr. (laughs) When he tried to get out of a chair, he'd he'd say words. He'd say, rugga, hunga. We knew he was trying to stand up. When he was enjoying food, he'd say, mmm, numsy. When uh, the lawn needed to be mowed, my father would come to me and he'd say, in this fake French accent, he'd say, Bill, it is time to mow de lawn. And he also called uh, Bach's uh, Vakatov uh, choral prelude. He called that the dieter's song, Vakatov, walk it off. <clears throat> As I said, it just goes on and on. When he was 75 years old, we literally came up with 75 of those different expressions that he said. And it wasn't hard. It wasn't hard. Dad was an adjuster. He could be flexible to almost any situation. He would acquiesce, give in pretty much anything to avoid conflict. He did have high principles. He just knew that you had to choose your battles wisely. Conversely, he did like to stir the pot artistically. He liked it when people were just a little bit uncomfortable. But he liked to do it politely. That's why one of the reasons we're singing this uh, later this morning, we'll we'll sing a Japanese hymn that he would often uh, uh, request on, you know, hymn request uh, time. He'd say he'd pick this strange Japanese hymn, which is awesome. It's a really good song. I hope you'll enjoy it. He would enjoy the fact that you might be a little bit uncomfortable while you sing it. That's good. So much joy, creativity, nervousness, piety, humor, all wound up into one person. He would admit to being selfish. He would say, I just want to do my thing. But then he would work against that because he also knew that being a good husband and father and colleague and teacher was very important. He would never... uh, you know, allow himself to be the artiste who could not be disturbed. He was always being disturbed. Um, he'd wake teenagers up in the early morning, even if it was before he had to get up. He'd uh, do some housework. That was always debatable. He'd, uh, he'd drive us around. He'd write us letters when we were far away in Germany and China in Philadelphia. Beth told about her um, six weeks away uh, when he watched Guiding Light for her. I, he wrote me every single day when I was in China for two months. Every day, I got a letter from my father about just something funny that was happening. But he also would find time to disappear into the basement and work on the next project. And he was always working on something new for a new musician who was in uh, town, who was at the college, who was at uh, the church. 
I remember going to sleep at night in my little bedroom, listening to Dad compose on his upright piano in the basement. He would search his way through the same little phrase over and over again until he got the chord just right. And later, I would instantly recognize the song when I heard it in a concert. Oh, oh yeah, that was one of those ones from downstairs. He wrote tons of music. Also, plays, poetry, operettas, a full-length opera, Young John Wesley. In his poem, International Sports Interview, you hear an athlete say, you know, many times, well, you know, where, you know, going to, you know. Dad ends that with two French words, we know. (laughs) There was always a dictionary by the table so we could look up words. There was always the Encyclopedia Britannica close by so we could uh, read stories about concepts. There was the great example of diligent scripture reading and prayer every night with mom. Uh, and I know that I'm losing a great prayer warrior uh, with my father's passing. He was simply the best dad I could have ever wanted. He was not a typical dad kind of uh, dad. He, he used to joke about that all the time. He'd come up to me and he'd say, son, get out there and give it your all. And then he'd like fake punch me on the arm. And, I, you know, we knew it was like a joke. He was not a hunting, fishing, sporting, tool-wielding, shoulder-slapping, guy-guy kind of dad. Instead, it was about unconditional love and grace, a lot of listening, a lot of peacemaking, a lot of fudge-making, a lot of music-making, creativity with the language, art galleries, classical music concerts, talking about theology, loving history. He, he could name all the kings and queens of England in order. That was pretty cool. Um, love of intellectual pursuit, love of learning, and, of course, the all-important love of going to the beef and barrel to eat. I'm just really proud of my dad. Uh, He left a great legacy of love for God and neighbor and grace to all. Thank you for joining us in praising God today for the life of my father. Well, I apologize if I cry, but Robin Pauling told me it was okay, so thank you, Robin. (laughs) I learned to appreciate the simple pleasures of life with Dad. Mom played organ for Cuba Baptist Church for 13 years, starting from the time I was 13. On the Sundays I attended church with Mom and Dad in Cuba, Dad initially explained to me the routine. Mom always wanted to be dropped off early at the church to get in one more hour of practice before the service started. Dad would say, after we drop mom off is when you and I get to do our special deal. And then he'd put his hand over his mouth as if it were a big secret and say, breakfast at McDonald's. (laughs) I can still see him with his London fog khaki trench coat, black slacks, and freshly polished shoes, smiling and approaching the McDonald's worker to order his breakfast sandwich, hash browns, and coffee with two creamers. I treasured those early morning McDonald's breakfasts with Dad. While mom played organ and directed the Cuba Baptist Church, dad sang in the choir with the tenors. Mom told me recently that dad would say funny little things under his breath during practice times. Sometimes she would ask the tenor section, okay men, is there anything that you feel we need to go over? That's when she would hear dad say quietly, admit nothing. (laughs) Dad always made a cheery entrance wherever he went. He was never morose, moody, or petulant. 
It was very important to him to adjust and remain socially and gracefully adept. No doubt, this was a mixture of his personality and upbringing. He said quite seriously to mom a few years back, as he felt the hindrances of age creeping in, I just don't want to forget my manners. In a culture which bears all, I very much appreciated the way dad was brought up as a contrast, in turn instilling the same virtues in us. Dad wrote letters to his sisters on a monthly basis explaining the goings-on in the Allen family household. Dad described his letters to his sisters, Barbara and Harriet, as his diary. The following excerpt from a letter written to me in 2004 explains the Allen form of communication with his sisters. I relay breezy information to them and eschew from events regarding personal struggle or pain. It would not be very Allen-esque to dwell too long on such things. My sister Harriet's recent letter to me regarding my, sister's, my sister Barbara's waning health is as such. Barbara will now be confined to a wheelchair all of the time. No more elaboration. <laughs> Despite growing up in quite a proper household, Dad did well relating to younger generations and was often amused by younger people. After youth group on Wednesday nights, a small group of my friends often came to the Allen household to jam, as my dad put it, there was guitar playing, joke telling, and CD swapping. Dad turned Adam Kettlecamp into Kevin Adelcamp. <laughs> dad wrote a romantic yet comical, actually, Dad wrote two romantic yet comical ballads for two of my girlfriends on account of their liking of two gentlemen at the time. The gentleman never knew of this, of course. In the early to mid 90s, I was a teenager, and the era of grunge and alternative music was upon us. The musical artist Beck had come on the scene, and a group of my high school friends were going to his concert at Darien Lake. Mom insisted that I go with a parental escort, which turned out to be Dad, <laughs> which is ironic, because Dad was not a fan of loud, bombastic rock music. Dad wore his navy blue zip-up spring jacket, his brown slacks, black dress shoes, and a navy blue woolen cap which Beth always said made him look like a European stonemason. <laughs> As we waited for the concert to begin, two girls looking 17-ish with ripped jeans, do-rags, and t-shirts dragged on cigarettes as they walked by us. <clears throat> One happened to look over and spot Dad. Oh, my gosh, I heard her say to her friend, do you see that little old man over there? He's so cute. Look at him with his little hat. <laughs> I told Dad what the girl said, and he was very amused. <laughs> For my 15th birthday, my friend Jasmine bought me the live acoustic Nirvana album, MTV's Unplugged in New York. Upon hearing my, uh, me play it, Dad commented, hmm, there's a lot of usage of triads, which was very popular in the music during the 1700s. I guess they're bringing that back. <laughs> One of Dad's famous play-on-word phrases was, what a patter, instead of what a matter. When Dad heard Kurt Cobain sing in his tortured soul kind of way, Dad would say, oh, what a patter, Kurt. <laughs> the term, what a patter, was also used in response to child number three's unnecessary whines. What a patter, he'd say. Your life hasn't been hard. You've not suffered terribly. 
you've had a good life. But Dad, my eight-year-old self whined about a fellow classmate, she has a fur coat. I want a fur coat. But is she fulfilled, Dad would say. (laughs) Dad, that's not the point. Yes, um, he would reply, and I'd walk off mumbling something as I knew there was no way to win that argument. Dad loved and respected Mom always. He was ready with a card for her birthday, their anniversary, or Valentine's Day. After he passed, I found cards already lined up in his drawer for Mom for several future holidays. He made sure us kids had cards ready for Mom, too. We purchased them at the Fillmore Pharmacy, which was a place that used to develop film back before the era of digital film took over. In that case, Dad used to say, there's far more filmacy at the Fillmore Pharmacy. (laughs) We always knew that Dad loved us, and he told us he loved us, but he wasn't one to gush. But as he got older, he became more forthright with the feelings of his heart. A little more than a month ago, after I fixed him chicken noodle soup and a half a tuna sandwich, set it down in front of him, he reached out for my hand and smiled, saying, You're a good kid. I'm proud of you. And you're a good mom. Mom told me in recent years that when she would go to hug Dad goodnight, his hugs became stronger, and he would hold on a little longer. He would often say, Oh, Jaina, you're the best thing to ever happen to me. Growing up with my dad, and Billy touched on this, had many names for me. Bruce Brown once said to Beth, I've noticed that your father never calls your sister by her actual name. (laughs) I had names like Hepzibah Sue, Prinella Pinsnips, Little Clytemnestra, The Books, and so on and so forth. When Beth uh, spent a summer in Germany, dad wrote her letters including things I had done. On one such occasion, he relayed to Beth that little Hepzibah Sue had found a dead bumblebee in the front yard and put it on the porch, letting Dad know not to touch it because it was sleeping. Dad dutifully left it alone until I forgot about it. Then he disposed of the bumblebee. Every so often, someone would say a phrase, and Dad would start to sing the phrase, always with the same tune. And Billy touched on this as well. On a Sunday afternoon, someone might say, the ham is in the oven, and Dad would sing, The ham is in the oven, da-da-da-da-da-da. The ham is in the oven, da-da-da-da-da-da. And then he would continue with the tune and expand on the lyrics, The ham is in the oven, and it needs a lot of loving. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. The ham is in the oven, and we want to eat. Whack. <laughs> Whack, right. <laughs> Dad, where did you come up with that tune? Dad finally explained to me that the tune went back to his early days at Houghton as a first-time churchgoer and his introduction to popular evangelical music of the 1950s. At that time, the popular church music was rather bubbly and sing-songy and greatly amused Dad. I was always overjoyed to see my father. He was tender-hearted, loving, and always gracious. The figure of a compassionate, gentle, and loving Christ was never hard to embrace as Dad embodied that. He lived by what he believed. One of my earliest memories is walking around our dining room table to see Dad coming in the front door. Daddy's home, I rejoiced. He used to put us on his knee and sing a little tune while he clucked his tongue. And it went like this. All these things made Dad so much fun. 
but there was the underlying reminder of his health issues. Dad had a massive coronary in 1978. Three years later, I was born. Even as a baby, Dad had to go into the hospital for procedures. He told me one snowy evening in January as he looked out of his hospital window, he thought of me as a new baby and the rest of his family and said, I can't leave them fatherless. I have to go on. And he did for a very long time with a compromised heart. I remember the prayers of gratitude I heard my mother say with me every night before bed. Thank you, Jesus, for another day with Dad. As early as I can remember, the messages were there. Daddy could go any minute. Daddy's heart can't take that. We're lucky we have Daddy with us. Although these were grim messages for a child, they caused me to live so intentionally with him. I took pictures, I recorded his voice, I wrote down his quirky behaviors. I was incredibly appreciative to have him around. Dad had a tender appreciation of life. One Sunday night, Mom and I were on church duty during the, uh, nursery duty during the Sunday evening service. Dad came down after the service was over to get us. Not all parents had come yet for pickup, and there was still a sleeping infant in a crib in a separate room attached to the nursery with the lights off. Dad wanted to go see the baby. He told me that one of the most beautiful and peaceful things in the world is a sleeping baby. I stood next to him while he leaned over the baby, admiring him and listening to him breathe for a few minutes. It's one of my favorite memories of him. When Dad was in the hospital and after he passed, I felt the emptiness of Christmas dinner without him at the end of the table, smiling and nodding and getting ready to read something special he wrote um, to read before dinner. I felt the emptiness of the house at night in the wee hours of the morning, void of his busy movements. Dad was quiet, but there was always the shuffle of his footsteps going between his room, the bathroom, the kitchen, and back to his room again. I prayed and still do pray for the ability to cope with his passing. I began to gather photos, write down memories, read old letters he wrote, and listen to his music. And those things began to warm me to the core. And I realized there are so many remnants of him that he left behind that I am forever surrounded by him. While I know I I will see him again, while on this side of heaven, I will never get used to the absence of his presence, but I have nothing but gratitude and rejoice for the lifetime as it seems that I've already spent with him. Thank you.
heard uh, a number of stories and remembrances of Bill's life from his children. We want to give you an opportunity to uh, perhaps share a brief memory, a brief story uh, with us. I'm sure that there are many stories you could tell uh, about Bill's influence on your life. And uh, we have a microphone to hand to you, and that's so everyone can hear. And the closer you hold that to your mouth, the, the better the sound and the least... Uh, chance for feedback as well. So we'll take, uh, we're going to do four, five, or six here, and then after the anthem, we'll have one more opportunity for you to share as well. So if you would like to, stand where you are, and we'll get the microphone to you. my uncle, Uncle Bill. The story I want to tell is, um, I imagine my uncle, I didn't know him that well. He always lived on several states away. But I knew him to be a very gracious person, a very kind person, uh, mostly quiet. Um, and so I identified with him um, on the quiet part. I imagined him to be shy like I was. I don't know that he was. 
but um, always knew him to be um, loving, even at a distance, even though we didn't know him well. So the last few times I saw him, we had a family reunion in Ohio. And he would see me and smile and say, I want to tell you a story. And he would tell me of a memory he had when we had been at a hotel somewhere on a family trip. And uh, we were at the pool, and I was trying to learn how to dive. And I was scared. And I was walking up to the diving board, and then I would quietly walk away again (laughs) and walk up again and back off again. And then... He said, I, he watched this whole ordeal, and at one point, he said, I got all my courage together, and I actually don't. And, I could, and then I did it again. And he loved to tell that story. I heard it three or four times at the last reunions. He would say, remember that story? Remember that day at the pool? And honestly, I don't remember. It's lost to my memory. <laughs> But I remember to this day, I am still afraid of diving. I think that was probably the only time I ever did it. But what I took from that was that he had recognized that courage, uh, that courageous moment. And if you're a shy person or prone to not be necessarily running to the risk of things, it's a challenge. Even if you have dreams and goals, it's a challenge to get past those fears and do the thing that you need to do. And I imagined he'd like to tell that story because it was his own story. And that he had um, tremendous courage to do the things he did in his life. Courage not to be bitter in the face of a difficult life at times. Uh, Courage to choose to be kind and loving. And to be a person of... um, resolution and a good, you know, for all the things that matter. <laughs> so I wanted to share that story. Thank I imagined you. myself to have some, some echo of the qualities of his own life. And I kind of, I like to hold on to that memory as um, an affirmation of who he was. Thank you. I've known Bill for uh, 60 years, and uh, uh, in fact, uh, um, I'm not sure whether it was uh, before he knew Jane or not, but uh, certainly before they were married, uh, they used to come over to to our house, that is, he and uh, Nolan Heisinger, Dr. Nolan Heisinger, and... uh, they would frequently do this almost almost every night. Uh, it seemed like it was it was a way that we sort of relaxed after the day. Uh, that's one thing I I remember about Bill so much. Uh, but there was one story that that uh, sort of sticks in my mind, and that was once when when uh, I was I was preparing. We were preparing for recital, and he was my accompanist. Although uh, Nolan Nolan would have would have said uh, this is not a uh, uh, soloist and accompanist. This is a duet. And uh, uh, 
And it's certainly true that the the piano part is is certainly as important as anything that uh, the soloist might do. At any rate, we were we were um, uh, rehearsing. I remember on stage in the chapel, and uh, uh, Bill sort of went off into some wrong notes and said, "Oh, uh, excuse me." Uh, and he was just sort of uh, com composing or improvising uh, on the spot rather than playing what the notes were. <laughs> and that really stuck with me. There's a lot of things I could tell about Bill, but I'll, I'll stop there. Thank you. Someone else? Dr. Allen was my professor of music theory. I had him for four semesters at Houghton in my tenure there. And being an instrumental person, accustomed to reading one line of music, uh, it was difficult for me to grasp the concept of the different harmonies and you know more than one line of music. And oh, I struggled through piano. <laughs> but the, he was a great person. I have great memories of him. And he was an icon. Thank you. Maybe one more in this section, and then we'll give another opportunity in a few moments. Thank you. Um, the piece I played, it, uh, I just sang, is uh, written by Dr. Allen, but it was written for his his um, wedding, his own wedding, and then I get to sing it for his daughter's wedding. Um, and I do want to say in the program also my name is m misspelled. He would call me Bidey Heist, not <laughs> Heidi Best. That was his name for me. I had the pleasure of living with the Allens for one of the semesters I was here as a student, my last semester. And... Um, <laughs> My greatest memory of Dr. Allen, I had him as a composition teacher. I'm not a composer. And uh, he put up with, you know, my, my, my arpeggios, which were many, because I just didn't know what to write. So, <laughs> um, and he was always so fun. But, I, you know, you're just so intimidated as a student because you know how great your professors are. And I was so intimidated always. And if once you get to know him, obviously, you know you don't need to be intimidated at all by him because he's such a wonderful person. And I learned that through living with them, and especially in our um, catching of a mouse one time, and the, the cat was not doing its job. And um, we there was a little mouse that was, you know, digging at things every night, and I couldn't sleep. <laughs> And, and so um, we, we, it was time to put the traps down. And so he put the trap down and put the little cheese on. And, and, and it, he took it as his job to do because that was the thing that the guy did. And so, so 
uh, he and I, I'm a country girl, so I'm used to the mice and everything. So he he put the trap down, and, and the cheese, of course, was gone the next morning, and there are no mice. So he, 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 I said, well, why don't we, let's do it this way. And he made me feel good about the fact that I knew how to bait a trap <laughs> for a mouse. And equally, we were on the same level as far as after the mouse was actually killed, we felt horrible. <laughs> it was such a cute mouse, and I just will never forget him taking that little mouse in his hand to take outside and petting the little black head. Oh. And, you know, some of you are like, ew, but it was a very, very cute, cutest mouse I've ever seen. But um, that, I just, there's so many stories that we all have, but that one really, you know, it's, it's odd because he just is, once you get, got to know him, he's just so easygoing and non-judgmental and, and it was just wonderful to, to have him and his family in, in, in my life and it still is. So thank, thanks you guys. <laughs> I'm going to give you another opportunity in a few moments after the choir sings this anthem. And we appreciate everyone who has given their time and, and energy and uh, giftedness to sing today.
Are there uh, a few more of you who would li- might like to share a remembrance, uh, a story? My name is Pat Shea, a small little girl from the cornfields of Illinois, and I married into a family. When I began meeting the family, I thought, how did I get here? (laughs) But I didn't really realize where I was. The Lord led us to work in Liberia, and he challenged me to help the Bible study the, the hospital staff learned the word of God by singing it. And then I had the audacity when we were here in 1980 to ask this gentleman who I knew taught composition to harmonize my little one-line scripture songs. And I didn't really realize who I was asking <laughs> until later. I just looked back last night, the copies I have. He very graciously harmonized 15 of those little scripture songs that God has used in Liberia. And I thank God for that man and his humble willingness to take his big gifts and use them in a small way. I think God may still use it in a big way. Thank you. I just want to say, growing up in Houghton, yes, it was back in the 50s when he first came, that it's already been mentioned, the impact of his humor and uh, creativity. Uh, it was one of those things that convinced me that Christianity is true. Hmm. It's not a severe, although there are things you can talk about, but uh, I would say on my top ten list of Christians who influenced my life, this is one of the top. And it's because of the Christ-likeness and the humor. And I just want to say, in the last few years, I got to know Bill and Jane at the nursing home. Every Wednesday, I began teaching the Bible, but they led the service and planned the service. And Bill was the master of ceremonies, or the leader of worship. And every Wednesday began with a weather report. (laughs) Uh, Bill would stand up before the formal liturgy and the prayer. Well, the weather... And he'd give the report. Hmm. And uh, I just treasure those last few years of knowing the life of Bill. Hmm. Thank you. I wasn't going to say anything because I didn't know if I could say anything. Um, But uh, so many have said things that I won't take long. In regards to missions, the Shays and so forth, I just want you to know that he said, I love these missionaries. I always want to be a returned missionary. (laughs) (laughs) In the back here. 
Hi, I'm Bill John Nubra, and uh, I've played an offertory or two at this church, and uh, such fond memories of seeing Bill up there playing with such gusto. <laughs> A different style, um, somewhat from mine, but I so appreciated his musical artistry. And uh, over these years I've been at Houghton, I've gotten to know Bill and Jane a little bit. And uh, it was so heartfelt to me that one day he just came up to me and he said, uh, here's a piece I wrote. And I looked at it and it said, Liszt versus Brahms with César Franck refereeing. I thought, wow, <laughs> that is a unique compositional style. <laughs> what... What really touched me about it, though, is he didn't say in a forceful way, you know, learn this, play this, perform this. He said, just file this away for future reference. And it is my hope someday to learn that and perform that in his honor. And uh, just the sweetness of his heart, it had such an impact on me. God bless. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you so much for sharing today. I want to read two passages of Scripture, uh, both from the Apostle Paul. The first is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, if a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands, meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or or bad. And the second passage is from Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Bill mentioned uh, Bill's love for uh, this hymn 541 that we're about to sing. And uh, Jane mentioned to me that uh, Bill loved the the freshness of this hymn set by a uh, Japanese Christian in a pentatonic scale. It's really a prayer of dedication with this universal message, glorify thy name. Please stand as we sing together. As I've listened to this beautiful music and the extraordinary words that have been shared, I've had this picture of Bill looking at me with this twinkle in his eye and an unforgettable grin saying, Top that, preacher. (laughs) 
We've gathered here today to celebrate the life of one of our cherished saints. Bill Allen was an extraordinary human being, as you've already heard. He was a husband, father, grandfather, composer, teacher, muse, and so much, much more, and he excelled at every one of those roles. But as you've also already heard, it was his commitment to Christ that more than anything set him apart. Because he was both a musician and a poet, it is imperative that we go to the hymnal of Israel, the Psalms. And I want to read the first Psalm today, and given this occasion, I would ask that you indulge me in some gender specificity. Blessed is the man who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners that and stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates on the law day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Psalm 1 reads like a prelude, an overture, if you will, to the rest of the Psalter. It summarizes here in a few words what this amazing collection of the hymns and poetry of Israel are attempting to tell us. I remember once hearing the late Dallas Willard say that every great teacher has to address four questions, whether we're talking about Socrates or Jesus or Buddha or whoever. What is real? What is the good life? Who is a good person? How do you become a good person? Implicit in this first psalm, we find guidance to answering those all-important questions, particularly what is the blessed life, the good life. That's a question that has puzzled and intrigued human beings from the beginning. While the good life may be hard to actually define, we seem to know a good life when we see one, when we see it embodied in human flesh. Our gathering here today is a testament to the conviction that we have recognized a good life among us. A well-lived life is anything but a given. And so when we do see one, We search for ways to point it out, to celebrate it, to thank God for it. Today we are here to honor a life well lived. Psalm 1 answers the question surrounding the nature of the good life mostly by talking about outcomes. The results of someone who actually lives a good life. 
That person is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. It is a life characterized by vitality and blessing. I suspect that all of you instantly assent when I say that Bill Allen was very much like a tree planted by streams of water. His life bore constant witness to its rootedness, to its proximity to this life-giving stream. A mere glance at the tall, robust tree that would be indicative of his life evidences that this was indeed a blessed man. Planting deep roots by the water that enable life requires intentionality. There are choices to be made. It doesn't happen by accident. One doesn't wake up one day to mysteriously discover oneself lush and green, vibrantly fruitful, securely planted by this all-essential stream. No, it involves a lifetime of deliberate choices, not walking in step with the wicked, refusing to stand or to inhabit the way that sinners take, the decision to avoid the company of the mockers and the cynics. It involves the ready embrace of God and his ways to the extent that one finds delight in them, along with a lifetime's worth of musings and the raw materials for immeasurable creativity. It is those kind of choices that enable one to become securely planted by the water of life. And people who make those choices are steadfast. They are secure. They don't move around. The old spiritual got it right. Just like a tree planted by the water, I shall not be moved. Bill had deep roots in God's ways. He tapped into an underground river of creativity that most people do never experience. It flowed out of him in a, in a God-given productivity that is both uncommon and a grace-filled contribution for the good of our world. Bill's gifts became a means of communicating God's goodness to a world that is so often bereft of beauty and grace. These deep roots enabled Bill to hear things that most of us never hear. But fortunately and in good, God's good providence, what he heard was very often transferred onto graph paper. The span of his musical interests were virtually boundless, from, from writing complex settings for a variety of instruments to the improvisation of hymns to composing an opera. One summer when I was here as pastor, he called me one day and asked me uh, to give him my summer sermon passages so he could write preludes based on my preaching text. I mean, who does that? <laughs> and yet he was a most unpretentious, warm, friendly person. If there was any ego in this man, I never saw it. In my pastoral days, I would sometimes slip out of my study and come over here and sit 
in this sanctuary to get away from the phone or just to think and pray. On one of those days, I walked into the back of the building to observe our musical savant and terminal degree from the Eastern Eastman School of Music sitting at the piano accompanying practice for the children's choir. As I recall, it was the most Christ-like thing I'd seen that week. It's, I, know, I know that it's possible that some people might call Bill a bit of an eccentric. But let me remind you that in this community, that is considered a good thing. <laughs> Eccentricity is way undervalued, in my opinion. To find people that are so self-differentiated, so at peace with who they are in this cookie-cutter world of ours is extremely rare. One of the great joys of being in this town for a while is that we have more than our share here of unforgettable characters. And today we celebrate and gratefully praise our God for one of the best on Houghton's long list of very rare birds. Bill would smile at that. As you've already heard, he had this wonderfully wry sense of humor. The best part of officiating at Billy and Kristen's wedding many years ago was that I had a ringside seat at the reception where Bill did comic shtick that would have passed muster in the Catskills. (laughs) What is it about musicians? I've often thought about this. What is it about musicians that they can be so lighthearted and just downright funny? It's a great mystery to me, perhaps not on the scale of trying to figure out the hours at the Houghton Post Office, but but it's mysterious nonetheless. I poked fun at the Postal Service because I can easily imagine Bill saying that. I I used to sit next to Harold McNeil at Artist Series, and and after a particularly hilarious performance by some world-class musicians, I asked Harold why all musicians seem to be so funny. At first, he just looked at me and grinned like I was, I had asked him as a magician to betray one of his tricks. But then he said something about music and laughter being parallel tracks towards joy. And sometimes they intersect. And I saw that intersection on so many occasions in Bill, and many of us here treasure the unique way that he had of making us laugh with music. The psalm says that this person so filled with life is a person who meditates on God's law both day and night. The constant practice of God's presence was very evident in Bill's life. For 38 years, he lived with uncertainty about his health. And yet, as far as I could tell, he refused to allow that uncertainty to rob him of the joys of life and family and of his service to God. And maybe it was that uncertainty that was part of what made him so resolute, so committed. And make no mistake about it, he was committed. You've heard a lot of memorable lines from him. 
for me, his, his most memorable line for me was his line when he said, it is a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of a living trend. <laughs> I can't tell you how often I have shared that line across the years with others. Bill didn't cotton to things, of, uh, trendy things, especially in matters of the faith. The Lutheran theologian Jacqueline Bussey said, I believe living a whole grain life of faith and doubt will feed our soul's hunger better than the junk food jelly bean diet of piety and cliches most of us have been forced to swallow whole like a catechism capsule. I believe authenticity, wonder, questioning, and honesty are the nutrients we need to make our faith healthy and whole and genuinely our own at last. Does that remind you of anyone? Now, I didn't know Bill well enough to speak with any clarity about his fears. Was he afraid of heights? Spiders? I don't know. But I did know him well enough to know that what frightened him was the possibility of living a life of faith that is fake and inauthentic and driven by the living trends of a culture that in its wisdom knew not God. Bill rejected the smarmy sentimentalism that passes for Christianity so often these days. He understood that God is much, much more than a Facebook friend. God is interested in way more than our smiley pictures of our vacations or a plate of food from our favorite restaurant or even our rants against the state of the, the body politic these days. He differentiated faith from the cultural fads with unseemly skill. He clearly understood that God wants all of us, the whole of us. God wants more than 140 character tweets or status updates. God wants to know what's really going on in our, in, within us, in our deepest thoughts and fears. He wants to know our idiosyncrasies and, and our, our worries God wants our creative gifts fully surrendered to his use. Bill understood so deeply the truth of Irenaeus' words that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. So at the risk of major understatement, Bill Allen was not a faddish person. He knew who he was, to whom he was committed, what was truly important, and what he wanted to do with his life, and what a life. Looking at this light in this life in the light of Psalm one, we can only say, "Well played, Bill Allen. Well played." Psalm one ends with the promise that the Lord watches over the righteous. In other words, this is the kind of life that calls forth attentiveness. It is the kind of life that is closely observed by God. The Lord watches over the righteous. On Tuesday morning, as part of my preparation for this homily, I went out to the north end of town here to say goodbye to an old friend. Just beyond what students call the field of dreams, there's the remnant of a tree. 
It was not just any tree. It was a giant. And for many years, centuries actually, long before Willard J. Houghton ever showed up in these parts, that huge oak tree stood sentinel over this part of the valley. Students called it the tree of life. That tree meant a lot of different things to different people. It was a favorite picnic spot. It was the, the, the theme of numberless paintings and photos. It was doubtless a, an iconic, romantic place for generations of couples. My own son had his engagement photos shot underneath that tree. On June, June 21st, this past summer, a huge storm felled that wonderful old tree. Houghton lost a very important monument to its history. Now, its sudden end did not make the evening news or anything like that, but among Houghton folk, it was a big deal. It was all over social media. media. It, it meant a great deal to many of us here. I don't know what it is about this community, but it has produced more than its share of extraordinary people. Giants, we might call them. In the tree world, they would be redwoods or giant sequoias or century-old oak trees. And over the years, we have seen them inevitably fall, as is the lot and destiny of mortal human beings. We grieve their loss, and eventually we move on. But they are etched into our collective memories in ways that evoke these periodic mixtures of sadness and joy. We lost another tree of life this past week. I suspect that just about any beginning philosophy student has had to wrestle with the old saw. If a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, did it make a sound? That little thought experiment is, springs from the thinking of British empiricist George Barclay, who argued that objects of sense exist only when they are perceived. Needless to say, Barclay's Ideas have been roundly debunked. My personal favorite takes the form of a limerick. There once was a man who said God must find it exceedingly odd to see that the tree continues to be when no one's about in a quad. The reply comes, Dear sir, your astonishment's odd, for I am always about in the quad. And that's why the tree shall continue to be, since observed by yours faithfully, God. I'm reasonably certain Bill knew that limerick. So here we are. Another tree has fallen. The hole that it leaves in the sky around Houghton and the hole that it leaves in Bill's family is unmistakable and real. And even though, Bill, even though Bill's passing did not make the evening news, 
and most of the world will not hear anything. The noise of its falling is deafening to this community. The world may never hear the sound of this particular tree so full of life as it finishes its earthly course and falls to join those who have gone before. But we have heard it, and God has seen it. We're precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. So this great tree of life has fallen, but the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, and there's no expiration date on that attentiveness. There is no expiration date over God's watchfulness. And that's why the tree shall continue to be since observed by yours faithfully, God. Amen.
for as much as it has pleased Almighty God and his wise providence to take out of the world the soul of William Timberlake Allen. We therefore commit his body to the ground, earth to earth, dust to dust, looking for the resurrection and the life of the world to come through our Lord Jesus Christ, at whose second coming the corruptible bodies of those who sleep in him shall be changed and shall be made like unto his glorious body, according to his mighty power, through which he is able to subdue all things unto himself. O God, all that you have given us is yours. You've given Bill to us, now we give him back to you. Receive him into your arms of mercy. Raise him up with all of your people and receive us also. Raise us into new life. Help us to so love and serve you in this world and to love and serve one another in this world that we may enter into your joy in the world to come. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.